This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 39. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Welcome to the first episode of 2018. I hope you had a good time. I had a pretty crazy, uh, scary uh, December. I actually ended up in the hospital, which is why I didn't have a an episode in that entire month. So things were got kind of got pretty bad. I was, was there for almost a week. But yeah, the, the recovery seems to be going well. I'm just kind of recovering now, but feeling good enough to do, you know, the, the episode here and there as well. So uh, thanks for tuning in. This is a really good one. I hope you like it. And uh, yeah, so today I'm excited to have Ed Rempel on the show, who is one of the top financial planners. And he's actually the guy, one of the guys that I go to whenever I have questions or need a second opinion about my investments or about uh, some of my financial planning that I do myself or on how to minimize my tax. So he's been a certified financial planner, so a CFP professional for over 22 years, and he's been a professional accountant for over 33 years. Uh, so he has a CPA and you know, CMA designation, uh, which basically to put things in perspective, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm 33 right now. So he's been a professional accountant for over 33 years. Uh, so, you know, as long as I've been alive. So I thought that was, you know, pretty impressive. Uh, and personally, I found out, you know, when I ask him questions, his decades of experience uh, as both a financial planner and a professional accountant has really helped me feel secure that he has all the bases covered as he essentially has a holistic view from both of those worlds due to all of that experience that he has. So it's, it's great. And I mean, he's written nearly a thousand financial plans for Canadians over that time. So he's truly, a, I would say, as you know, one of the kind of as experienced as a guest in the field and he does have extensive knowledge on some of the higher level investment and financial planning strategies that can really help accelerate our returns and this is what we're going to focus on in the interview all right uh, and if you'd like what you hear from ed you can actually sign up for a free 30-minute consultation with him where you can ask him some of your questions and you can get that by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash ed so just ed so buildwealthcanada.ca slash ed and i thought it would be neat to send you a little bonus with that too uh, just to kind of help you, you know, maybe even come up with some questions. Uh, so if you sign up, you'll also automatically get a guide on the top questions to ask your financial advisor or, you know, or your financial planner. So these are questions that you can ask Ed if you want, or if maybe you already have a financial planner or advisor, then you can use those kind of that guide uh, to really kind of test how maybe how good they actually are and if they are still a good fit for you as well. So once again, in case you missed it, to get the free 30-minute consultation with Ed and the guide on the top questions to ask your financial advisor, you, you can just go and sign up at buildwealthcanada.ca slash ed. So just E-D. All right. And uh, now before we get into the interview, I do want to make another kind of big announcement. And that's the, that the show sponsor, which is paytm.ca, is actually giving away an iPhone 10. So that's a $1,300 phone, uh, at least, uh, which is really, really cool. Uh, so to qualify for the contest, all you have to do is use the Paytm Canada app to make a bill payment of at least $50 with either your link bank account uh, and or Paytm cash. So it's, it's that simple. You basically have to just make a you know, $50 plus uh, payment essentially using the app uh, just to pay one of the bills that you pay anyway. Uh, and to get the app, you just have to go to paytm.ca on your Android or Apple device. Now the contest will end uh, at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 31st, 2018. So in other words, at the end of this month, so January 2018. So uh, don't let this slip. All you really have to do is you know, take 10 minutes to get the app, pay your first bill. Uh, you know, and this is just bills that you're going to be paying anyway. So just do that. Um, you, you know, you can get some cash back on that as well. Plus you'll be entered into the contest and then you're all set for the giveaway. Now to get more details and even get an extra $10 free just for trying the app, you can go to the episode show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 39. So just the number 39 and all the details and links are in there as well. Now, if this is your first time hearing about Paytm, uh, it's an app that basically helps you manage all your bills in one place, and you can get up to 2% cash back on the bills that you pay through the app. And it can even get as high as 10% cash back on certain purchases. So it's a really cool app. It's it's free, and you basically get all this cash back. Uh, now, no bank in Canada is giving away that much when you pay your bills. Usually, you get nothing when paying your bills through the bank. So this is kind of a nice way to get something. And as a sponsor of the show, like I said, Paytm is giving away $10 cash back to all Build Wealth Canada listeners when they make their first bill payment. So to get that, just don't download the Paytm app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You know, and when you run the app, just choose the type of bill that you'd like to pay. And when you're paying that bill, enter the promo code BUILDWEALTH. So when you're 
paying your bill, there's a little spot there for the promo code, just enter build wealth. And when you do that, you'll instantly get $10 cash back on that bill. So it's basically, you know, free money that you get as a thank you for, you know, trying out the app to, to you know, pay your bills and get the cash back uh, and that kind of thing. So the, that promo code again is build wealth, uh, just all lowercase, no spaces to get that $10 cash back. And if that bill is over $50, then you're also now automatically entered to win the iPhone 10. So that's uh, pretty cool. So a big thanks to Paytm for supporting Build Wealth Canada and putting up uh, some pretty neat prizes like the iPhone 10. I definitely wasn't expecting something that uh, something that major. Uh, so, you know, I, I wish you the best on the giveaway. I wish you have a you know, wonderful talk with Ed if you if you choose to kind of take him up on the offer to get that uh, free 30 minute consultation. And now, yeah, let's get into the show. All right, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cornell. I've been looking forward to it. Me too. So, Ed, to start things off, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into financial planning? All right. Actually, um, going way back, I actually had it started off with a whole career in, in uh, accounting as an accountant for a few different companies. And then I just finally got in interested in my own financial planning and my own long-term plan to retire early and, and, and investing. And eventually I found that I, I wanted to advise people instead of advising big companies. So I started up my own uh, started my own planning firm. I did it on the side for the first couple of years, and I was fortunate to get a contract uh, training uh, uh, financial planner. So I trained um, over 200 financial planners with the, with the major credit unions. An introduction to financial planning and introduction to mutual funds. This was back in the 90s, and I found the um, the course helped me organize my thoughts a lot, and. Um, and then actually, I actually really enjoyed doing all the in-depth writing financial plans for people. And I found it was actually often a struggle for many people, like to when you actually figure out how much you have to invest to have the retirement that you want. For most people, they couldn't quite, they couldn't make it, so we had to compromise and find ways to uh, to do that. And I found that whole process of of struggling of figuring out. Um, you know the sacrifice. How much you want to sacrifice your lifestyle now to to have what you want later on, uh, and what options you have with that with that was all was all very uh, very fascinating. Um, I ended up finding that that um, you know all the other planners that I knew, I hung around hung around with a whole bunch of them, but and all of them said that they did planning, but none of them actually did. And I, I found by doing the planning, I, I just had a. I developed uh, an insight into what really works and what doesn't, and my insight ended up being very different from the what I call conventional wisdom. What what do you read in most places, and what's what's on the media? And I learned what really works, and so that's why I started up my blog, Unconventional Wisdom, and it's my way to try to to uh, educate the public in, into what what really works, like how to uh, how to have the life that you want. So you mentioned with some of the, the advisors, they weren't actually doing the planning. Is that just because they were primarily just focused on selling investments as opposed to actually doing the plan for you or for the clients? Yeah, it's actually kind of shocking. Mm -hmm. I call it the big lie, but it's the the entire industry is very much focused on selling investments. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I haven't really seen a, no, a really good study on this. When you ask people, if they do a plan, they all say that they that they do one. And in fact, if you ask people if they have have a plan from somebody, a fair number of people will say yes, but nobody can actually produce it. Mm -hmm. so, um, but when from looking around, I think the fact is that probably less than one percent of financial planners, even certified financial planners, have written even a single financial plan in their entire career. Hmm. And is that just you think because that's just not where the money is? Is that primarily the issue you think? Yes. It's mm -hmm. it's a lot of work. It's it's complex, and to do it, you know, the way that we learned it when we did our CFP course, um, it's it takes it's complex to do. And you know, you get paid on the investments. Mm -hmm. Most of the industry gets paid on the investments, so that's they just dive right in if they can sell an investment. That's all they want to do. So is it so is it often that just the financial plan has to be kind of good enough so that the client can say, okay, I've got one. I've got some nice charts. It's going to, you know, I, I feel like, you know, they gave this some thought, you know, here, here are some my investments are going to grow. I keep thinking of those bar charts they always show you, right? And, <laughs> and then, and then that's kind of it. And then, but the majority of the conversation is all about, okay, let's get you investing as much as humanly possible because they're going to get fees on the back end. Exactly. You know, I have with, with, with most financial planners, 
when you meet with them, they're actually straight, you know, when, within the first 10, 15 minutes, they're already talking about investments and, right. <laughs> and asset allocation. And then you get something called a, a financial plan. You know, the cover page says your financial plan's got your name on it. You open it up, and it's a one-page investment presentation right right you know and that's that's all it is <laughs> so uh and even the i've had i've had a number of people that have got a plan like a 40 page plan from somebody but when you talk to them they said they talked to the planner for five minutes they he answered a few questions keyed a couple things and it printed out 40 pages but <laughs> they don't they don't know what it is yeah and you know so because so, so, when i ask them so you have a plan are you, you know so when are you retiring <laughs> what do you have to do are you doing it and they have no idea <laughs> so then you, you don't have a plan if you're not doing it. it. But but it looks like they did a lot of work on it when it's a very giant uh, document, right? Right. They hand a giant document there. It's okay. There, I did I did the financial planning. Now let's talk about investments. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, don't worry about the details too much because we're gonna I'm gonna work with you throughout to make sure the investments are taken care of as per this 40 page plan. And so, yeah, I, I think it's like a, it's like an alternate marketing angle, right? As here's this, all this work, I look, look at all this work I did for you. Now let me, let me implement it kind of deal. Right. So the entire uh, industry is, is set to, you know, market with a claim that you do financial planning, but really get straight straight over to investments. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is what I found from experience is, I mean, I think I have a really good investment philosophy, but I think I make a much bigger difference in my clients' lives with the plan mm -hmm. than, than, you know, the plan is the biggest thing. Because now you actually sit down, we define, for example, the retirement plan is often the biggest part of it, you know, financial independence. For sure, for so, sure. So, how, when do you want to retire? How much money do you need? How much do we have to put away to get there? And how are we, and how do we, how are we going to invest it? And like it's that whole process of figuring that out and figuring out with your cash flow and with your taxes and with your debts and your other goals. And it's it's that process that makes the big difference because most people before I see them aren't putting away nearly enough. Right. Right. And yeah, and I like I like that part of the financial planning process where you actually sit down with them and say, okay, here's where you want to get to, here's what you have to do, and if that's not reasonable, then it's good to have someone like like yourself, for instance, where you can say, okay, well, here's the levers you can pull to still get there, and here are the things that you could potentially sacrifice on. Which one of those are you willing to sacrifice on? Which ones are you not? That kind of a thing. It's it's good to know. Exactly, exactly that process. So what I do a financial plan. I do it in front of the client where they look at the software mm -hmm. and they can see it. And most of the time, the first draft, okay, we're not we're not putting away enough to get where we want to go. So we have a few options. So you know, you can retire later, or you can invest more, or you can retire on less, mm -hmm. or we can. Sometimes there's uh, I've learned various strategies that you can do that can may help you get there. Uh, often more aggressive strategies, but you have to look at there's a few options. And you can adjust each one of those options until you get a, a plan that works for you, you know, that's somehow reasonably doable, and yet still gives you a good result at the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. So let's um, let's dive into some of these uh, kind of more, more detailed uh, strategies, because I know you, you'd focus a lot on uh, kind of some maybe even not as common strategies, but ones that can really save you a lot of money in taxes or, or help with your returns a fair bit. So one of the strategies that I wish I knew more about back when I was younger was how to actually make your mortgage tax deductible. So our friends in the US, they're able to basically deduct their mortgage interest against their taxes, whereas, as, as you know, this is generally not allowed in Canada. However, you suggest a strategy called the Smith Maneuver for Canadians, which basically, when properly structured and deployed, it can actually let Canadians also deduct their mortgage interest. Can you... Um, can you talk a little, a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, interesting because I've developed a bunch of different strategies, but I've kind of kind of gotten known for this one. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's one that actually works uh, with a f works um, for a fair number of people. And um, you know, in short, what you're doing is you're borrowing against your home to invest for your retirement. Okay, and it's kind of an elegant process that's designed so that you use the equity as it becomes available with you know with each mortgage payment, you're paying a better principal. We can borrow that little bit about about back, and uh, and invest that amount. And it actually and there's a way to actually uh, we call it capitalize the interest, have the credit line pay for its own interest. So the whole process takes no cash flow. And where I found it useful is, you know, the struggle we were just talking about for um, becoming, for retiring or becoming financially independent. So if, if you're not putting away enough money and you 
don't know where to find more money to put away, yet you don't want to work longer, one of the one of the options is you use your home equity to invest, and it gives you a whole bunch of extra money that you're investing towards your retirement that's not using your cash flow. So you can still do your RSPs and TFSAs and everything else you're you're normally doing, but this is this is a, an extra amount. And I found in a lot of cases that made the difference between being able to achieve, you know, the, the, for the clients being able to achieve their life goal versus not achieving it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so it's, it's actually a very cool strategy. Um, I should add that it's definitely not for everybody. Um, you know, it, it is kind of cool. There's significant benefit to it, but you, um, uh, you're borrowing to invest against your home and that's definitely too risky for most people. Okay. Okay. So how do you figure out whether this is something somebody, somebody can handle or can if it's too risky? risky? Yeah, that, that's actually quite a detailed conversation I have with every client mm -hmm. uh, about what, how much risk can they handle and, and what, what happens. So we borrow some money to invest and it goes down. And, you know, it, this should be a long-term strategy. So they're, um, you know, it, it is going to go down at some point, right? There'll be some market crash or some bear market somewhere in the future. And... Uh, I have to become convinced that the client will stick through it through whatever happens. Mm -hmm. Because if anywhere in the next 30 years there's a big market crash and you sell, then this was a horrible idea. Right. right? You, you have to be able to st stick with it all the way through. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, you, you know, you don't have the same risk issue with uh, other investments with RSPs. You know, but somehow it feels different if you've borrowed the money. For and sure. It could, it could be the investments fall and they're worth less than what you've borrowed. Uh, but, you know, if, but you you got to stick with it long term. So you have to have the right risk tolerance um, for it. For sure. Yeah, because um, I can see it's it's one thing if the, you know, the markets are doing well, the stocks you bought are issuing their dividends and that's covering your interest payments and things are rolling smoothly. I mean, that's that's one thing. and. And that's kind of an easy thing to become okay with. Uh, but I could see kind of if, if the reverse or when the reverse happens where, okay, you're now you're still paying that interest for that borrowed money every single month, but those investments are now worth less than what you bought it for. Uh, and then maybe those, some of those companies started cutting their dividends because we're going through a recession, that kind of a thing. So now, you know, what if those dividend payments are no longer covering your interest and now you just feel like you're, you know, kind of pumping money into something that's, that's losing money. And if, if, if you can stomach that and, and hold it longer term, like you, like you're supposed to, uh, then, then you recover. Okay. But I can see it being especially painful if, you know, for that time period where, you know, you, you're, you're paying that interest every month, but you're not seeing the dividends come in to offset that. And I, I could see that getting really, really painful for someone. Um, yes. Yeah. If, if it's worth less, it can, it can actually be quite scary. Right. Now, just to be clear, we're not actually using the dividends to pay the interest. In most cases, okay. we try, try to invest with, uh, with as little, uh, as tax efficiently as possible. And we're using, we're actually capitalizing the interest and we're having the credit line pay its own interest. Okay. So you're, your, your investment credit line just grows and it pays its own interest. And that's why you don't, it doesn't take any cash flow. You obviously still have to pay it, but you're borrowing to, to pay the interest. Oh, okay. Okay. I got gotcha. you. As well. That, that's kind of, that's how the process works. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, but you can still have the risk of, of, of being, uh, your investments being less than, than, than the loan. And you have to think of it as a long-term strategy because, um, it is part of the retirement plan and, um, and I think the reason it needs to be a long-term strategy is that um, we're, you know, the best way to do it is to invest in, in equities and stock market type investments. And they um, are pretty um, unpredictable, short, and even, even medium term. But what I think what most people miss is the stock market is actually quite predictable long term. So if you're in 25 years or more, the stock market has historically always produced a gain. So the worst ever gain in the worst ever 25-year period was a gain of 5% a year. You're quadrupling your money. Mm -hmm. That's the worst that's ever happened in, in a 25-year period. Mm -hmm. And in the last 80 years, the worst 25-year period was a gain of 7.9, a 8% a year. So if you're in the long term, you have a very high chance of getting a good result. That's why I think it should only be done uh, as a long-term strategy, as, as part of a 
as part of a plan. I've had some people say, you know, let's just try it for a year or two and see how it goes. And that, to me, is a big red flag. No, we're not going to try this. We're actually going to, we're either going to decide it makes sense for you and we're going to commit to it long term, or right. we're not going to do it. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm glad you made that uh, distinction there. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's not something. Okay, well, let's try it for a year and then see how things go. It, you can, it can't be that short-sighted, essentially. So I guess when someone a client says that to you, then that's an immediate flag that okay, maybe this actually yes. isn't a good fit for them. Um, yeah, I won't help somebody implement it if that's how if that's what we're doing. <laughs> right, right, okay. So no, that that's interesting. Yeah, so it has its risks, like you yes. said. Like it, you it's said, not for it's everyone. Not for okay. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds good. So it's a it's a strategy that. It, it, so it sounds like if somebody is struggling, being able to invest a significant amount, let's say every single month, and they're concerned that okay, after I pay off my mortgage, after or after I pay do my mortgage payments, after I do my monthly expenses, I really don't have that much left to actually uh, invest on, on the top of what I'm you know currently doing. So you're saying in those cases, the strategy could be beneficial because it doesn't actually impact their cash flow. Is that correct? Yes, it's it's one option that one you can they could consider. Right. That that can help uh, help achieve the uh, the retirement goal. Right, right. But then, like you okay. said, it also comes with kind of a whole set of risks, and it and it's not for everyone. So, it, yeah. So it sounds like it's something that once you when you, when you're talking with clients, this isn't something that you jump to immediately. It's more something where you get a good idea of their financial situation. And then based on what they tell you, based on what their goals are, then you figure out, okay, could maybe they use this to, to their benefit a little bit more, or is this simply not a good fit uh, at this point? Is that pretty fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sounds you good. just know the client and what their risk level is and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does it actually make, uh, make sense yeah. for them? So the benefit can actually be quite significant. You know, the, um, I have a, a software that actually uh, uh, calculates the, projected benefit based on conservative assumptions and uh generally the uh the uh with with just the standard smith maneuver the projected benefit is usually double your mortgage so you know if you have a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage then over 25 years the projected benefits usually around six hundred thousand mm -hmm. and that's just from the standard um that's after tax and after the interest payments. And that's just the standard Smith maneuver. There's actually many ways to do it. You can go big or small. Or... There's uh, seven different categories of Smith maneuver-related strategies. Mm -hmm. Lots of ways to do it. But uh, So it, the benefit can be quite significant, mm -hmm. but, it, uh, but, the, but you know, the, the bigger benefit is when you borrow more, more, larger amounts of money, and you just have to be comfortable with that. You know? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So, so it is a big enough of an amount where it is worth your time to actually look into it uh, and actually determining whether it is something that you should consider doing or not. Um, but also, you, you shouldn't just blindly go into it and just be all keen on doing it when you don't really know all the details and, and kind of the negatives and the drawbacks of that. Um, that makes sense. But yeah, no, that's that's a obviously exactly. a, that's a very giant, attractive amount. Um, and I mean, I and it's interesting, right? Because when I first got, kind of got into investing, uh, every everywhere I read it was like, okay, don't ever do leveraged investing. It's it's a bad idea. Just don't do it. But then, just having this podcast, talking to other investors, you know, there are there are people that do this successfully, and they are able to handle it, and they are, uh, you know, they, they are benefiting quite a bit from it, like like you said. Um, so it's so I find it's not as black and white as I thought when I you know first started years and years ago. It, it really kind of depends on the person. Um, yeah, no, so I'm, I'm glad you shared yeah. that. Yeah, I can say I've got, you know, I've helped over 300 Canadian families implement it. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, I've advised a lot of people online who are trying to do it online and uh, themselves and ask me questions. Mm -hmm. But um, about two-thirds of the people that approach me to do it, I tell them it's not a suitable strategy for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I can see that because, I mean, when I, like years ago when I first heard of it, I just thought, what you can make your mortgage uh, payment, your in, your mortgage interest tax deductible. This is amazing, and it, you know it, it sounded like the best thing ever. Uh, I think I, I got some flyer in the mail or something that talked about it, and I got really intrigued about it. Uh, but then, of course, you know, as you start kind of peeling back the onion, you you, you start seeing okay, it's it's not necessarily that that simple. Uh, there's a bunch of caveats to it, and it has to be done properly. Um, especially if you don't want the government on your case, right? Because there's there's a whole that, that's another question, but yeah, there's a, there's also that whole component. Um, but yeah, so I get the impression though that a lot of Canadians, when they do, if they do choose to use the Smith maneuver to get you know make their mortgage uh, interest tax deductible, oftentimes they do it with the primary residence. Is that right? 
Yeah. So what if somebody, let's say, has their mortgage paid off um, or has a rental property? Is it highly beneficial to still use kind of a variation of the strategy? So basically taking out equity from your home, using a home equity line of credit, for instance, and then using that for the leveraged investing. Yeah. So if your if your mortgage is paid off on your home, you can just borrow. Uh, you could borrow up to eighty percent of the value, and invest it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Like so, basically, you're at you know the end of the Smith maneuver. But but um, from from there, you uh, if you've got a good time frame in front of you, you can get a, a benefit much more quickly. Then you know the Smith maneuver. If it starts out so small often and builds gets big over time, if you have a lot of equity. Um, you can start out with a much bigger amount. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. So, so if your mortgage is paid off, would you, what you would do is would you just basically yeah, take a, get a home equity line of credit, take a portion, uh, whatever amount you're comfortable with, take that out as a loan, and then would you now then be investing it in relatively sustainable, um, or I, was, I should say stable, uh, dividend-paying stocks in Canada? Would that be the kind of idea so that the dividends pay, dividend payments offset the interest that you're paying? Is that how you would structure it? Um, no, I would, we'd still, I mean, I've, all, I've always done it with, um, with mutual funds. I very much believe in professional management, but, but I'm also looking at, I want to invest all over the world and I want to, um, um, I want to be tax efficient. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for, you know, generally global, uh, global funds with all-star fund managers that, um, that have the lowest tax possible and we're capitalizing the interest. We're not using the dividends to pay it. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Cause I, cause I've heard some variations in the past where people they'll, they'll, they'll kind of do the strategy I just kind of mentioned where they'll, they want to get the dividends. They invest in companies that produce a fair, like a pretty good yield and then use that to try to offset the interest payments. Um, and then that's kind of how they, they do it. But your, your approach is a little bit different and it's more kind of, it's, it's, it sounds like it's more diversified and less dependent on dividends. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're not, we're not dependent on, uh, on dividends. Plus we're diversified all over the world and, right. and all that. It, it, the dividend investing is kind of, it's something that's been pro- popular. It's one of the themes that's been popular since 2008 and everybody's scared of the market and they're right. looking for you know, anything with a yield. So dividend has investing has been, has been popular and we're in kind of a strange time where interest, interest has, is so low, interest rates are so low that dividends actually cover it. Right, exactly. Or, or they can cover it if you, if, you pick, uh, if you pick the higher dividend paying stocks. But in most markets, they don't necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily cover. Right. So um, I've also modeled it. You know, I've looked at, okay, what if we, um, uh, let's say, for example, we have, uh, we invest in a fund that makes 8% a year long term versus we, we have one that makes 5% a year of growth plus a 3% dividend. Mm-hmm. And over 25 years, where are you at? And what I found, and um, usually you're, you're always quite a bit ahead when you don't get a dividend because you're actually, it reduces your, um, uh, it reduces the, the tax refund that you get every year. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Right? So the, the theoretical benefit of the strategy is lower. I find if you're, if you're investing in dividend paying stocks, you need to make um, almost 1% higher rate of return in order to offset the, the extra tax you're paying. Oh, okay. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. I, I like, uh, I like talking to you, Ed, cause you always have uh, like those kind of the common, popular uh, wisdom that you might see, you know, on a lot of blogs and things like that. And then I like how you take that and you plug it in, you do the math on it and you say, actually, this doesn't always work the way everyone thinks it does. And, and actually there's a more optimum way of doing it. So no, that, that's really interesting. That's what I love. That's why I yeah. call it unconventional wisdom. That's my blog. That's right. That's right. I, I like your blog posts because they're usually pretty controversial against that popular uh, wisdom. So, or the, you know, the Kind of popular sayings that everyone hears all the time so it's uh it's interesting just to kind of get a better understanding uh, and not to just kind of generalize things um so that, and then with uh, with rental properties is that kind of something is the strategy applicable to that as well if somebody owns a rental property is it the same kind of deal yes you can you can do it with a rental property as well and people first think well rental property is already mortgage is already tax deductible but right re- really so the smith maneuver converts your mortgage into a tax deductible credit line. It doesn't make the actual mortgage tax deductible, right. but it replaces it over time with a credit line. And the same with a rental property, as you're paying it down, you can reborrow uh, to invest. And you know, so it's converting it, it's converting to uh, a credit line that's tax deductible for investments. Mm-hmm. As you pay down the mortgage, that's, that's uh, deductible against the rental property. 
And it's actually useful to do with a rental property because uh, a rental property with a lot of equity in it is actually a very inefficient um, investment for tax purposes because right. the rent is all fully taxable, right? So uh, you don't have a lot of tax on a rental property when you have a huge mortgage. But if you have a lot of equity in it, you're getting all this rent and there's a lot of tax on it. So it's useful. So it actually works quite well with a rental property because because you keep the the you keep your credit line uh, pretty high. Your tax deduction for the Smith maneuver offsets the rent, and meanwhile you have these other investments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. It's it, it's interesting with the rentals. I because we still have a rental property, and it's like the more of the principal is paid off. Or like you know the 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 smaller mortgage you you have, the more principal you have in the property, the the lower your return actually gets, right? Because you're becoming less and less leveraged the more and more you pay off the mortgage. Um, so yeah, it's interesting yeah. How, how that kind of because it's like oh you want to pay off your mortgage that that's that, that's kind of the default, right? But then you're like oh it's actually lowering our our return now because now we're becoming less leveraged. Um, yeah, but middle property you it's actually best to keep the mortgage as large as you can. Right, right, yeah, yeah, because because you're deducting the the interest off it and then. Um, yeah, so no, that's interesting. So you can almost be, uh, I guess, like du- double uh, leveraged in a sense, right? Where you're, you're leveraged because you're buying, you're, you're taking on a mortgage on the rental property, plus you're using the Smith maneuver as well uh, to take any equity out that you've gained on the property. So this is kind of another way to, I guess, grow your returns, assuming you're okay with the leverage and, and the the risk that comes with that, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You, you're getting if you're doing multiple properties, you're getting it's getting a big, it's getting bigger. You have to be comfortable. Right. Right. With it. But very often the rental property, usually what we do is uh, uh, if, if you have a home on rental property, you would want to pay your home mortgage as fast as possible and the rental one as slowly as possible. Right, right. Which generally, which often means that the Smith mover on the rental property is fairly small. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it is, well, the useful part about it is I find people that have a rental property, often they have, you know, 80 or 90% of their assets are in Canadian real estate. right. And and so it's useful. It's very good to diversify and have. I, I find it's generally good to have at least half of your assets in stock market in equity investments. Right. Right. Instead of having having all just in real estate and equities and, and real estate actually are good diversifiers for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Yeah. As, as soon as you get into the the uh, real estate uh, rental game, I find your uh, your whole portfolio allocation gets out of whack because <laughs> it's like you buy one property and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm you know over fifty percent now in real estate, <laughs> just yes. because the amounts are so high, right? Uh, relative to your your uh, stock portfolio. Um, no, yeah, that, because if, if if you count your the value of your house plus not the equity, but the value of the house and the value of the rental property, compare that to the value of take all the investments you have and, right. and how much is in stocks, how much is in bonds. You know, a, very, a lot of people find they're 80 or 90% in real estate. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what that's what we were in at one point. I was like, okay, no, I gotta. <laughs> I'm not buying more real estate. I need to. And we ended up selling one because yeah, it was just. Uh, I'm like, this is not normal. This is going against everything everyone says about diversification, right? When you're holding 80, 90 percent in uh, in real yeah, estate. Yeah, it's not very so. diversified. Yeah, so. yeah. So, no, but just mm-hmm. interestingly, I have uh, like I've helped a fair number of people do it with a rental property, and my record is uh, seven properties with one client. We uh, we did Smith Mover on their home, five rental properties, and wow. a cottage. <laughs> wow. Seven rental properties, seven Smith Maneuvers, all with one client. Wow. And, and they're able to sleep all right at night with all that leverage? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, most of them are... Most- most of them were fairly small amounts. The home was the bigger one. But. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, I admire their uh, their ability to just you know stomach all that because I'm not. I would say most people can't. Uh, we we get pretty nervous, right? Anytime there's a big market swing or anything like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are some people I've run into a few a very small number of really aggressive wealth building people that just want to build as much wealth and and they have no trouble with with uh, leverage and as high as possible and. Mm-hmm doing the Smith maneuver, maybe even getting a separate investment loan on top of that. And they're looking for like, how do we maximize it all? You know? Oh yeah. 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 No, it's a different breed. To, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but it's, it's a, it's a very small group of people that are, that are like that, you know, for sure. Yeah. I think everyone wants to, you know, maximize, but not at the risk, not, not at the, not at the risk of basically increasing your risk so drastically. Right. And, and yeah. having to put up with all that volatility and all of that. Um, so yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, some people just kind of, <laughs> they want to, I guess, see how far they can take you. Right. It's like a, 
it's it's like a challenge for them. So no, that makes sense. Um, yes. But yeah, so- yes. We, we always we always look at you know like not, it's not only how much you borrow today, but let's say if we're going to do it on two properties, let's flash ahead twenty years and see how much you would owe. 20 years from now right right and and so if you're not coming comfortable with the figure at the end you know let's <laughs> let's not start on this road unless you like where it's going yeah yeah you've got to be you extremely know? comfortable with that to, to do anything uh, close to that for sure um yes. yeah no that's interesting so i mean i've researched the smith mover uh, uh, a bit in the past and i mean a common theme that i've noticed seems to be that you've got to be really careful with how it's all set up or the Canada Revenue, and basically so that the Canada Revenue Agency doesn't flag you and treat this whole thing as tax avoidance where you end up paying all kinds of fees. Uh, so can you talk about what to be careful of? What are the common mistakes that Canadians uh, make when they try to set this up by themselves without any sort of help? Just to be clear, tax avoidance is legal. Tax evasion is not. That's oh, the difference. Oh, <laughs> Evaded, sure. Yes. Because I think that's avoidance. what they would charge you with, right? Is, ta- is it tax... Uh, uh, well, tax evasion or accusation of tax evasion, I guess, is what they could technically try to charge you with if you did it wrong. If you, um, well, if you do it as a, as a somehow as a sham in some way, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, the the important thing is that um, you need to have a, a good uh, tracking. So what Revenue Canada is looking at is what they call the current use of of the money. So if if you ever audited, and actually, um, because we have quite a few clients doing it and we do their tax returns we end up uh, dealing with revenue canada we get audits from them uh, quite regularly or or a quest for information pretty well every year we get we get a few of these requests for information mm-hmm. so we know how to deal with it but but whatever revenue canada is looking for is a clear tracking they have to show that the money from the credit line went to the investments and that it's still in those investments you didn't somehow take money out of them or something okay and track it, and you got to be able to show the transactions to show that mm-hmm. that that's where all the money went. Right, right. So uh, it can also be used for. Um, it's okay if some of the money from the credit line was used to pay its own interest. So the tax rule is: if the interest is tax deductible, then the interest on the interest is also tax deductible. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So, but you, but basically, you need a clear audit trail of it. Mm-hmm. There's ways that you can that you can make it more clear that way. Right, right. You need a, a clear way to track it, maybe with a separate checking account, or there's things you could do to to, to make it clear. That's the big thing to uh, to watch out for. Okay, that ma- that makes sense. Yeah, everything I've ever researched about it was always like make sure you've got someone that make make sure you kind of your account knows about it. You know, whoever's doing get get some help on this basically because you want to make sure that yeah, if you do get that request for information or or, or an audit that you're able to. Um, basically prove that everything is above board essentially which which it is right but you want to make sure you, you can prove it sufficiently to their satisfaction or, or you're going to get dinged basically right exactly yeah. it's funny they, they can if you don't know what you're doing they can be scary like it's yeah. not hard you just got to track it but when they ask you the, the request for information it's a two or three page letter and they have a you know 10 items that they want yeah yeah well, <laughs> and it's the, and you, you it can be quite breathtaking when you first see it but it's just a matter of putting it all together yeah but you know our, our response to it is often 20 30 pages it's it's a lot of Mm-hmm. detailed response but it's but you know it's it's not hard it's just a lot of data that you be able to have to be able to have to be able to track yeah yeah that makes sense uh, and right, if you can't what revenue canada does is they don't they don't make an opinion on it they just ask you to support it and if you can't support it they just deny it okay gotcha that's that's what happens they'll just deny the interest deduction then okay okay so here, let's uh, let's change subjects a bit. Let's talk about RESP. So a lot of Canadians they they hear about the free money you can get from the government if you put money in an RESP. It sounds like a really appealing thing. And I remember when we had our daughter, I got a whole bunch of calls from companies that were you know trying to quote unquote help us with setting up an RESP, right? And I put the help in quotes because obviously they're gonna you know they probably want us to invest in some high fee funds and you know they get their card or whatever the case may be. So uh, so to kick things off, can you explain what an RESP actually is and is this something that we actually need a company to set up for us, or is this something we could easily do ourselves if we, if we're a do-it-yourself investor? Yeah, so RESP is a government program. It's basically just a type, a type of account. And so, if you open up an RESP uh, to save money for your, uh, to save up for, for your kids, the government gives you twenty percent of whatever you put in, up to twenty-five hundred a year. Okay, so you put in twenty five hundred. The government gives you five hundred bucks, and then uh, which they put into the RESP, and now you got three thousand 
a year that gets that gets invested. So it's a it's quite a good way to uh, to save, and the amount is actually fairly reasonable. If you start when your child is young, let's say two or less, um, and you put away the twenty five hundred bucks away every year all the way through, and you invest it and make a good good return, equity type investments, it's it's close to covers the cost of education that's including tuition plus living costs and, and all that so it works pretty well um, now you don't uh, need a company to set it up for us those companies that were calling you were actually not uh, standard RESP they're what we call scholarship trust or group RESPs so there you're putting it into a into a plan where many people are in the same plan mm-hmm. um, um, so those scholarship trusts, uh, they've been after me to, to uh, use their product for years, but uh, I don't actually like their product. So I can't actually find that, the, I can't get around, I can't recommend it to anybody. Um, so their, their investments are entirely in bonds. Oh, okay. Um, so it's very low rate of return. And yet when you calculate the rate of they, they show you projections of what happened and, and returns aren't that low. They're like 5% a year often if you look at what people actually got. Mm-hmm. But the reason for that is, and is also the reason I don't like them, is there's a whole list of restrictions with a scholarship trust, not with an RESP, but with a scholarship trust. There's a whole list of restrictions on getting your income. Mm-hmm. Uh, on getting the money out at the end. Mm-hmm. So your child has to go at age 18. They can't skip a year. Uh, you know, this, this, um, and they have to, if they do skip a year, they have to announce it well ahead of time and they can't change beneficiaries after age 14. It's like each one of them has a bunch of uh, restrictions. Right. And what happens is um, about a third of the people that are in there lose all of their 18 years of growth. Mm-hmm. So if you put money into the group plan and uh, your child doesn't go to university, you lose all the growth. Mm-hmm. All you get is your contributions back. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, yeah. So that's and that's why I don't like them. So the RESP itself is a government program. You set it up. It's a type of an account, just like an RSP. And you put the money in and you can invest it in whatever you want to invest it in. Mm-hmm. You can use an advisor to help you invest it or you can just buy whatever other investments that you would buy. And all the money gets gets invested in there, and then you don't have all those restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what we had a family member actually that kind of got talked into that, and and yeah, they got they got hurt by that pretty badly um, because um, their son ended up not kind of going the traditional route. Like you said, there's all these different rules, so he didn't, you know, he didn't do kind of the traditional okay, go at this age, and you know, like he kind of switched around things like that. Long story short, yeah, they they lost quite a bit of money uh, with that kind of approach. So. Um, yeah, so I, I know what you mean. We, there was quite a bit of tension in the family. I remember when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Uh, I think a better, a better route, don't go with a scholarship trust. Go with your own RESP. Mm-hmm. Invest it, um, at least, especially when your child's young, invest it. It's probably similar to what you do with your RSPs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just, and just let that grow. Yeah. So, so uh, do you, um, do you start, like, let's say your, your child is, let's say two, you know, like really, really young, you're starting the RESP for them. Do you start with a diversified kind of all stock portfolio? And then do you use some sort of a formula then to know how much you should move into bonds every single year to make it more and more, uh, or, or to make it less and less volatile as the child gets closer to actually having to take that money out? Um, yeah, so what this that question is all based on uh, risk tolerance, so it's different for every for every client. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in most cases, when they're younger, we invest them the same as as their uh, their retirement money. Mm-hmm. So uh, and and a lot of cases that's a hundred percent equities. Right. I think that and that's that's fine when the child's younger. You got a, you got a long term time horizon uh, in in front of you, or at least quite a few years. Now RESP though is a shorter term time horizon than your retirement money. Right. Right. Because it's only, you know, 18 years. And most of the time they take the money out within four years or four to six years. Right. Well, you know, retirement, you invest for 30 years and you take it out over 30 years. So retirement is, is a, is a much longer time horizon. So, um, but you know, it's interesting when you get to the last few years, um, it's uh, whether or not you switch to more, uh, you like, to part bonds, uh, I guess it's a very big risk tolerance questionnaire because uh, issue, because um, most likely 
you will have the most money if you just leave it 100% equities all the way through and just take your money out and just leave it 100% equities. Because, you know, even if you're, uh, you know, two years, let's say your child's 16, going to go to university in two years, mm -hmm. but then you're going to take it out over four years or four to six years. So the money is going to be invested for between two and six years. Mm -hmm. And in that case, um, the odds of uh, the stock market being up over that period of time is about 85% or a little more. Okay. So most likely you're going to make more money. 85 out of a hundred people will make more money being a hundred percent equities uh, versus, versus bonds. So when you put bonds in, you, you're, you're always, you should always assume you're probably going to get less. You're probably going to get a lower rate of return, but there is a certain chance that, you know, that your, that your investments would, would fall more and you'd, and you'd make less. Right. So, if you're you know if you're in the last couple of years, uh, part of it is you know whatever risk you're comfortable with, and part of it also is how important is it that you need every dollar that you have. Mm -hmm. You know, if you just have enough for tuition and you're only covering tuition, and if you lose some money, then you don't have tuition, and what are you going to do instead? Then you can't you know you really can't take maybe you can't take the loss. Right. Right. But for a lot of people, they can. In fact, what will happen is their kid will take a student loan anyway. And uh, we've actually had cases where um, somebody saved up an RESP, you know, had a higher risk tolerance, left it all in equities. Investments did go down. The child just took a student loan. Mm -hmm. And then we took it out closer to the end before they went out, before they finished uh, uh, school. We took it out, and we actually ended up being up anyway. Oh, okay. So, um so yeah, it's you know even over short periods of time, the stock market is up. Remember, it's up about three quarters of one year periods, and eighty five percent of three year periods, and ninety five percent of six year periods. So most of the most of the time, you're still up, mm -hmm. and it's so that's that's the whole issue with uh, you know it, it is it is a discussion of what to do in the last few years. Yeah. But to be honest with you, for most of my clients, we've we've left it as all equities all the way to the end. Okay, okay. What what if someone says I don't feel comfortable with that? I'm too scared. That like let's say you know they're afraid that a 2008 kind of happens. Let's say you know a year before their child goes to university, right? So they're terrified of that. They they they, they, they want to really lower the risk of that happening. What what kind of um, is there an, an, an allocation that you would recommend for something that's very conservative like that? Yeah, like like when we've got more conservative people like that, we often put um, we switch over to balanced funds or half in balanced funds. So okay. let's say we're twenty five or fifty percent in bonds, maybe starting at age fifteen. Mm -hmm. All right. So in the last three years, plus there's four years of withdrawal. So this, you know, we're in the last uh, uh, say six years of uh, you know our our our. Our time horizon, when most of the money will be invested, is about five, six years, mm -hmm. and maybe that's the point where you should maybe start looking at getting more conservative. Okay, okay, no, that that helps. Yeah, I think it's just nice to have a bit of a benchmark for those that you know do want to have that extra bit of uh, security, essentially, right? Because um, for sure, like I don't, I don't know, like I, I think I have a pretty high risk tolerance, but I would still be nervous if it was you know like a year before my daughter goes to university and I'm all equities in her RESP. I don't know. I, like, I know this, that, you know, there's that whole psychological thing too, right? Where you're like, what if, you know, what if something happens and that kind of a thing? So no, so that, that, that helps. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Ed. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the stock market has historically 85% uh, of market declines. The market came back within one or two years. Right, right. So even if, you know, you're taking out over four years. So even if there is a crash, there's a good chance that you'll come, you'll come back in between. That, that, that's a good point. But, yeah, it's not like you have to. Most likely, you don't have to withdraw all of, well, it, all of it in that first in year. That like first you said, you can hold on, like with your one client, withdraw a lot of it or most of it. Let's say in their fourth year or something like that, or third and fourth year. And like you said, by that time, there's a there's a good chance that the market has at least recovered a bit. Um, right. Yeah, and yeah, that's a good point. Where age 15 comes from is, I think, okay, let's take you're taking out over four years, so let's count two of those. That's on average. That's how much is invested in three years before that. So at age 15, you've got, let's say, a five to six year time horizon. Right. And so and that's where the the success rate of stocks falls below 90 percent. So based on historic history, 87 um, percent of five year periods, the market is up, but 94 percent of six year periods. Mm -hmm. right. So once you once you're down to from a six year to a five year time horizon, maybe that's the time to start thinking about about adding bonds. OK. Okay. That's where fifteen. That's where age fifteen comes from. It's, 
it's uh, there is some science behind it. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, no, that, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've been getting quite a bit of questions about RESPs on the show, so it's, I'm, I'm glad you uh, were able to cover that in a fair bit more detail. Um, yeah, no, that's great. So let's say let, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's say you have to retire tomorrow with a million dollar portfolio and you have no debt, your house is paid off, but you have no work pension as well. How would you structure your portfolio and what investments would you buy so that it would last you indefinitely or, or to maximize your chances of, of it lasting you indefinitely? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Cornell, because I actually found a really interesting, uh, when I studied that, I, so I studied that in depth. I went through 150 years of data of stocks, bonds, cash, and inflation, and I, I looked at um, what what happens, uh, what would have happened historically, um, would you have made it through retirement? Uh, based on what on what you uh, what you did, and so what I what I was studying, I started off with the four percent rule, which is a rule of thumb that financial planners use that you could take four percent out a year. So I thought, okay, let's see, is that true? Would that have worked? And um, what I found, which was quite surprising, was it does work with a if you have a very high portion of equities, at least 70% or even better off 90% or more in equities, but it does not work if you're mostly in bonds. Hmm. And most, of course, most retired people are mostly in bonds, right? Right. So it's when you're, and the reason is it's a 30-year retirement, which is a long period, long-term period. I, I, in my study, I define success as um, I take 4% out a year and increase it by inflation for 30 years and I don't run, out, don't run out of money for 30 years. So, and over a 30 year period, believe it or not, stocks are more reliable than bonds. Uh, the, the, if you take 30 year periods of time, you'll find the stock market standard deviation for 30 year blocks of time, the standard deviation after inflation is lower than it is with bonds. So I found that it's, it's, there's a lot more cases where, where bonds didn't work. In fact, about, about half of the time, bonds, you ran out of money in less than 30 years. And yet with stocks, it was about a 97% success rate. Hmm. So it, it, when you're retired, trying to take the maximum uh, reliable income, the most reliable income is if you're very heavy in stocks and have hardly any bonds. Now, that's completely different from what most people think. You think right. you're... It's, you think stock bonds are safer, right? But what happens is stocks go up and down and they have that risk, but they do come back over time. And if you invest for 30 years, they come back. Uh, bonds, however, get killed by inflation. So anybody in the last 150 years who retired and there was a period of higher inflation somewhere in their retirement, they ran out of money mm -hmm. when they were all bonds. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that whole study. Actually, I, I, it was quite an in-depth study. I spent quite a lot of time researching all of this, and uh, found it really interesting. So it's it's all on my uh, on my blog site. But I also looked at different, um, you know, what should it be instead. So so most people that uh, are somewhat more diversified should take three and a half or three or two per two and a half percent, not four. And I also looked at all kinds of different options for different allocations and what if we made up a rule or we're going to not increase it in some years. Like I looked at all kinds of different kind of rules. Mm -hmm. Maybe we reduce it, we reduce it if, if we have the market goes down too much. And I looked for how do I set up a, a, a process where we can take more than 4%. And I find that I found there's actually ways if you're willing to, to occasionally take a, a bit of a drop in in your retirement income, you could take up the six percent a year on your retirement income and still be a hundred percent reliable over thirty years. Okay, okay, yeah, I remember reading that uh, that blog post that you read. It was really, um, yeah, it was it was really really good. And and yeah, it was interesting, especially right because it was kind of contrary to the common to, to what we hear. You normally when you read just kind of general uh, retirement advice. So it, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, to actually see your results after you crunch those numbers. Now yeah, it's a great, it's a great unconventional wisdom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> now, would you change your investments and your portfolio structure at all once you hit sixty-five? So, what you just told me right now, I mean, this, I think this was more so if we're dealing with a kind of traditional retirement where, okay, you hit sixty-five, you start getting CPP, you start getting OAS from the government. If you're, let's say, doing an earlier retirement, does that change things at all, or, or I'm, I'm guessing uh, not, right? You'd be just as much in equities, if not more, right? Um, mostly like, like, so just, just actually, I should add one point to the last thing is, um, being a very high in equities proved to be much more reliable in history. 
Um, but I'm not saying everybody should do that. You still have to be comfortable with being all in equities, right. and most seniors aren't. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just it's just it's an educational point that it, there's a benefit to doing it. So you should try to be as high in equities as you can as you can tolerate. Mm-hmm. But if uh, you know when you're when you're retired, you're taking money out. You're no longer putting money in, and a lot of people are much more scared about having uh, equity fluctuations. Right. So in that case, you should still maybe uh, you know have seventy percent in bonds and just uh, take take less income. Take uh, you know three percent instead of four. Mm-hmm. Or, or something so um now so basically you should set up your structure like if you it's it's part of your overall retirement plan so you can get cppo and oas and your rsps and your other pensions and, and you look at all the different pieces together and you decide how much to take out of where and what's what's the way to optimize uh, the tax so you could take out money at low tax brackets but not at high tax brackets and Avoid clawbacks. So you may adjust how much you take out here. It wouldn't necessarily the CPP and OS wouldn't necessarily um, affect how you would how you would invest it. Okay. So um, you just the one that thing in that I, extra cash flow basically, and then you you modify your withdrawals accordingly because now you're getting the CPP, you're getting the OAS. Uh, but yeah, but you're saying you wouldn't actually change the structure or anything like that, or, or what investments you're buying per se. Um, right. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I did find interestingly is, you know, CPP um, and OAS, you can get more if you delay it to age 70. And CPP, you can start it as early as 65 with, with um, or 60, age 60, but, but you get less. And when I studied that, a lot of people look at, you know, what's, which, what's, which is the way that gives me the highest odds of getting the most money? And they look right. at, at age and when does it run out? But when I studied that, what I found the most, the single most important factor was how you invest. Okay. Because if you take CPP, that means you can take less out of your investments and it can grow instead. And what I found is um, CPP uh, uh, equity investors should generally take their CPP and OAS as early as possible and take less out of their investments. While people who are uh, balanced portfolios or who are more in bonds mm-hmm. should take more out of their investments and they should delay CPP and OAS as long as possible. So it's oh, it's okay. the uh, the age thing was one thing. When does it run out? But actually, the single most important factor was how you invest. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think I've ever seen any other articles on CPP and OAS that that looked at that. Yeah, that's but I'm comparing the rate of return of the portfolio versus the rate of return you're getting the implied rate of return by taking your CPP earlier or late, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Cause so you're saying basically you're, if you're heavily into equities, you're earning a higher return than, than you would be. You're earning, you're earning a higher return. So you want to basically not take that out as long as you possibly can. Um, yeah. But right. Yeah. Or, or, or so you do the reverse. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And that's in the same article, I think, right? No, I, I have a couple separate articles about CPP and OAS. Okay, okay. So you know, I'll I'll link to those in the show notes, and then uh, people can just jump right. They they can go to a, um, yeah, they'll go to the show notes of the episode, and then they can just click there, and then they'll, they'll get taken to your site with those. Because I think that's a really interesting, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Because because I think a lot of people, at least just from ones I've talked to, they they say, well, I, I want to take my CPP and OAS as quickly as possible because you know, what if I die? What if I you know miss out on money because I pass away or something like that? What what's your what's your response? Do you have a response to that because i'm sure you get that question a lot too right where people just want to take it as early as possible by default perhaps um yeah i think um i think people sometimes um don't realize how long most people live today right right <laughs> right and so if you, especially if you're married like your, your spouse still gets 60 percent of your of your cpp not the oas but 60 percent of the cpp so if you're 65 uh and average health You've got 20 years in front of you, and if you're married, the one of you could could be there 27 years later on average. Mm-hmm. Like an average couple of age 65 um, with average health, one of them, the, the one that lives the longest, will make it to 92. Mm-hmm. So people live longer than you may think. Um, you know, unless you know your health and you, you know you're not going to live that long or you don't right. think you'll live that long. But so – we do the math on average life expectancy and, you know, let's assume your average health and which way are you the most likely to get the most money, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and that's how it's, it's most, that's how you, you do that. You know, we're, we're trying to find, trying to help people make the smartest decision based on that. Right. 
So um, makes sense. But you know, I've I've had I've heard both arguments. One is I might not live long, so I want to get it as quickly as possible. And then people say, well, you know, I make you know whatever it is, eight and a half percent rate of return by by waiting, which you don't. You get eight and a half percent. You get a or six and a half percent more. Or you get a higher amount mm-hmm. for every year that you wait. Right. Which is not which is not your rate of return. It's just how much more income you get for a f- certain number of years. Mm-hmm. But I've had people say, oh, look, I get so much higher rate of return, I should definitely wait all the way till the end and get all the extra CPP and OAS. Mm-hmm. So I get I've heard both arguments quite often, but it's uh, I think it's it's actually worth looking at it and seeing if you're are you above average health or not, and especially how do you invest and let's make the decision where you're most likely going to get the most money. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, how there isn't just a flat answer. That's always the best one. Where oh, you should always take it as early or always take it as late. Um, yeah, just it really depends on the financial plan, their health, like you said, how they invest. Because that that's that's an interesting one about how the the investing piece how that plays such a big factor uh, regarding when you take it. No, that's awesome, man. No, thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, so can you um, can you tell us a little bit more about where we can learn from you? Um, well, so I have my blog, which is uh, edremple.com, E-D-R-E-M-P-E-L.com, where also you can get to, to it from unconventionalwisdom.ca, CA meaning the Canada one, not the not .com, it's unconventionalwisdom.ca. So, and I've got a lot of articles that are going back more than 10 years, and they tend to be the very in-depth um, articles on each topic. So there's, uh, there's a lot on there. Um, I also have, if you go, go to that page right at the top, I have a video. Uh, it's 50 minutes long, but I've put together what I think are the single most important things that people I think should know about finances and about how to become financially independent. So in the less, less than a time of one TV show, you can learn all this stuff. So I find that video I think is definitely worth worth listening um, to. I also offer a free 30-minute consultation. So I think a lot of people aren't sure whether or not they should, um, you know, should they just do it all themselves or should they hire a financial planner and, and get a, first of all, get a financial plan or, or work with a planner over time. And the 30-minute consultation is a way for us to get, you know, you get to know me, we get to, to know you, we see if we're a fit, then you can understand the benefits, you know, in your specific situation. So that's on my blog. You can just you can just fill it out and request a, a thirty minute consultation. Okay, no, that's awesome. Thanks. And yeah, I'll I'll make sure to link to it as well from the uh, the show notes. So we'll have the articles in there, and plus a way if anybody wants to do the free uh, thirty minute consultation. And then yeah, lastly, let's talk about your practice for a bit. So what are some of the most common questions and problems that you tackle for your clients? Like you mentioned, the Smith maneuver already. That seems to be a very common one. Are there um, are there other ones that you find people really uh, struggle with that need a lot of help with? Yeah, I've gotten known for the Smith maneuver, even though it's a one of one of quite a few of these strategies that I that I do. It's the one that's kind of got got that I've gotten known for over the years. So a fair number of people come to me just for the Smith maneuver, um, but I really only do it for people where it fits into an overall plan. Um, but um, uh, but probably the the bigger thing I think is is the uh, the comprehensive planning. And there's very few sources to get that in Canada. I've done so much of it. I've sort of done over a thousand comprehensive plans. So it's people want to who want to take control of their whole finances and know that they're optimizing everything. Uh, they can do that through first of all having a plan, and secondly, you know, working with me over time to help me to help them uh, them impl- implement it. So, and of course, the biggest the financial plan, the biggest piece, of course, is your retirement plan, financial independence, and how do you get there, and how do you do that? But there's always everybody else. Everybody has multiple goals, uh, you know, education savings because we're paying off the mortgage and minimizing tax and uh, uh, insurance and estate planning, and so it all fits into an overall. Uh, in, and it's all part of a, what uh, what should be uh, within your financial plan. No, that's awesome, Ed. No, so thank you so much. That was uh, it was great having you on the show. And uh, yeah, I'll make sure to link to the some of the blog posts that you mentioned as well uh, to the free consultation. And uh, yeah, and then thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your uh, your more advanced uh, tactics, especially. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. I'm very very much enjoyed it, Carnell. Okay, that sounds good, Ed. All right, have a good one. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ed. Just a reminder that Ed is offering that free 30-minute consultation where you can get some of your questions answered. And you can get that by just entering your email at buildwealthcanada.ca slash ed, so just E-D. And I've set that page up so that when you sign up, you'll automatically be emailed the guide that I made 
on the top questions to ask your financial planner or advisor. So you can basically ask it some of those questions if you'd like or ask your own or use it on your own. Uh, if you already have an existing financial planner or advisor, you can use those questions on them too to see if they are still the best fit for you. Uh, and of course, don't forget about the big, big prize that you can win, the iPhone 10, thanks to our sponsor, paytm.ca. All you have to do is go to paytm.ca on your Android or Apple device, download the app and pay one of your bills using uh, you know either your linked bank account or Paytm cash uh, and using that app and make sure the bills were $50 and you'll be automatically entered to win. Also remember that when you're paying that bill, use the promo code BUILDWEALTH, all lowercase and one word, to get a free $10 cash back on that bill as well. So you're just kind of getting an extra $10 just for as a thank you for trying the app. You know, plus, like I said, if the bills were $50, you're automatically entered into the contest as well. And you can also go to this episode's show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 39. So just the number 39 to see all the details of the contest, uh, the, you know, the link to sign up uh, to, to have a chat with that, etc. And yeah, you can see everything there in written form. All right. So once again, a big thanks to our sponsor, paytm.ca for putting up such an awesome prize. Have a great week. Enjoy your talk with that if you'd like some of your questions answered and good luck on winning that iPhone 10. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.